Hello and welcome to Bondcast, our podcast series where we discuss the latest trends in markets and our views. I'm Joanne Spadigam, European Mates Strategist, and I'm joined by Ross Walker and Jan Marusi today. Uh, so hi everyone, we're coming just off the back of some very hot US CPI uh, prints just now. Jan, what's your take on it and what does the print contain for today? Yeah, like you said, CPI just released half an hour ago. And uh, if you just look at what was expected from economist surveys and what we got, it was more or less in line. Headline came a little bit uh, above expectation at 0.4 in the month, but that's uh, that that also contains the what's called like the more volatile food and energy components. The core side was pretty much in line at 0.3 month on month. Uh, there's some uh, you know goods and bads in inflation. 0.3 on its own is of course uh, above the Fed's long run target of of 2% once you analyze that number. But, uh, you know, a couple of caveats in there, I think. Uh, first, core goods, uh, which earlier on the pandemic had accelerated somewhat because of a combination of uh, supply chain uh, issues and and, uh, and high demand from the consumer. Uh, those core goods prices that were showing significant increases month to month have now firmly moved into kind of like a deflationary territory. Uh, we got another negative 0.4 this month. Uh, and and if you also look at one of the biggest contributors of the increase in core CPI, which was uh, you know like the owners equivalent rent, so the OER, all of these shelter measures that showed a 0.6 increase in the month, a, a notable jump from a last month where it was 0.4. Uh, you know the details that you know we could start nitpicking the details of why that happened, but that measure is pretty lagged. It doesn't really track the uh, you know the the shape of the current uh, real or at least like rental and and real estate market, it's a it's a pretty kind of like a backward looking measure. So uh, it, it's hard to rely that in real time, and that's why the Fed has looked at measures such as uh, what they call super core uh, services, super core, just super core CPI, where they strip out housing, they strip out uh, energy and food, and uh, and if you kind of look at these measures, actually, uh, once we exclude the shelter side, it it, it looks like inflation is, I think. Uh, firmly where the Fed wants it to be, uh, you know, because eventually we want to return to this pre-pandemic environment of goods being in more or less in deflationary side, services coming in between two and three percent, and shelter similarly in like two and a half, three percent range. That was how we got to the two percent target pre-pandemic, uh, and that's kind of probably that. What would we expect to be going forward to? Shelter, in my view, is is something that will keep trending lower despite what we saw this month. So I don't think it's anything alarming. Uh, particularly for what we would get from you know at the November meeting, but it just certainly opens the door for for December. So have we really changed anything uh, on the back of the spring in terms of our Fed view? Do we kind of still expect this pause in November? How does that leave December? Uh, kind of after the spring? I think a pause in November is is the more likely outcome in my mind. Uh, interestingly, we had this situation where well, with the curve steepening and long end yields. Uh, selling off, Fed officials kind of came in with a little bit of a softer message that, well, if the curve keeps doing this, we don't have to hike as much. So that's one. And second, I don't think inflation on its own uh, proved or should push markets into pricing in a lot more for November. I think, if anything, the risks are now shifting towards December. So uh, I think we, we will maintain our uh, our hold for November and eventually 
hope for December too, but I can see the curve spilling into the December meeting uh, and out of November even more as people anticipate that we might get similar kind of like, you know, maybe not an acceleration, but like a lack of this, uh, this inflation over the next two inflation reports, which we'll get between now and December. So our view remains of no more hikes, the hiking cycle's over, and this should kind of like influence the path of when the first rate cut comes rather than like how many more hikes going forward. So uh, trying to ask your question, I don't think, I don't think this, today's CPI should move the needle all that much for November. Um, and just in terms of rates markets this week, we've had a bit of a rally uh, driven really by these geopolitical tensions. Uh, what do you think investors should really make of the kind of moves we're seeing in markets at the moment? So a lot of that rally was actually seen in the long end. So like 10 year, 30 year. And uh, I'd imagine that's a combination of the kind of the dovish Fed speak that came over the weekend, but also just the flight to power that you usually tend to get in these type of environments. Uh, you know, steepeners are pretty popular trades, so unwind of those certainly added a little bit to momentum by uh, you know kind of re- buying back the long end uh, of the treasury curve, but also generally the front end of 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 the U.S. yield curve is more or less pinned. There's so much you can price in in terms of. Because there's so much you can price in terms of hikes. In fact, there's very little you can price in terms of hikes. So a lot of this duration of buying the flight to quality will will go through the long end. So I think that's probably enough for the U.S. today. And we have our special guest today, Ross Walker, with us. And I'm going to switch over to the U.K. I mean, we we not we had big that a big week in the U.S., but next week will be the big one for the U.K. We will get a lot of uh, labor market data. We will get the CPI data, and that comes ahead of the the next the November meeting as well, the BOE meeting. So uh, can you just walk us through what we're expecting there and should that make a difference? Yes, I mean, markets are quite finely balanced in terms of their, their pricing for the November meeting, nine or 10 basis points of, of hikes priced in. Um, maybe a little bit toppy in our view, but um, you know, clearly a relatively close call. And, and as you say, the labor market data uh, on Tuesday, the, the 17th, and then inflation the day, the day after, I think will be the really the key determinants of that, that November decision. So on the wage side, uh, I think we'll almost certainly see the headline earnings measure tick down. We've got 8.2% as our forecast, down from 8.5. That recent boost on the headline rate came to a large degree from some essentially one-off public sector bonus-type payments. So that's not an ongoing influence. We can see the headline rate come back down. On the, 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 the underlying regular pay growth measure, that may, we think, stabilize at uh, 7.8%. You know, I think to get, to unsettle markets, to get a more sort of hawkish sense of, a real sense of hawkish risk around November, you might need that, that X bonuses rate to have a, an eight handle. Um, the next day, CPI, probably core CPI, Will be more of the focus. We had a huge fall in last month's data from 6.9 to 6.2 percent. Prior to that, the UK core inflation numbers really had left the UK looking like quite an outlier versus the US and the Eurozone. So that last set of inflation data brought about it brought the UK back into the pack. We, we think we might just see a partial rebound up to 6.3 percent on, on core CPI. Uh, we've got a bit of extra auto fuel pushing up the headline rate. Um, but again, to, to, I think to, to, to spook the markets and to get a real uh, likelihood of a quarter point rise, I think maybe that core CPI measure would have to be coming in uh, above 6.5%, something like that, I think, really to, to alter current market pricing. 
And, and to take a step back and just looking at the outlook for the Bank of England, I mean, uh, just I'm curious about to hear about the, the rate outlook generally. Today we had the BOE's chief economist, Hugh Pill, basically saying that the outlook was finally balanced in his word. Is it really finally balanced or do we differ in our views there? Yeah, I, I think, you know, if, if you go back to June, not that long ago, the, the, the Bank of England surprised the markets with a, a half point rise in rates. And really, since then, we've seen a, a scaling back of the hawkishness, both in terms of actual policy delivery, but also in terms of the rhetoric. And, and, and you're right, Hupil was was quite guarded in his, his comments uh, this week at the, 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 the Marrakesh um, event. But he did also reference quite clearly that there's a lot of tightening still to come in the pipeline. Policy action they've already taken, but has yet to filter through, particularly the UK's mortgage market where fixed rate products, including five-year maturity fixed rate mortgages, um, are, are very prominent. So there seems to be, just at the margin, a little bit more acknowledgement from those mainstream MPC members, including Hugh Pill, um, that you know, there's still quite a lot of tightening coming through in the pipeline. And we have, as we saw with this week's GDP data, you know, we're probably going to get a negative third quarter GDP print. So the economy, which had already been stagnating, there's that, you know, more, the evidence is building of, of, of more loss of momentum. And as I say, risks of a negative Q3. So in that context, that you, you, you would think would induce a little bit of caution. Those activity and employment indicators are just starting to roll over a little. And in that context, what is the peak for uh, for the Bank of England? And if anything, when do we expect the first rate cuts, right? Like just similar to what we have in the U.S., the Bank of England has been pushing against the idea of rate cuts as well. But uh, when do we see this easing officially starting? So we think where we are now, five and a quarter is the peak. There is obviously some risk around November. We maybe put the risk of a quarter point rise at, at around 20%, not the sort of 40% territory that the market is, is currently pricing. Um, I, I think, um, you know, in terms of the sort of sequencing of rate cuts, we, we, we certainly find it, we, we think it's easier to see a scenario where maybe the ECB and the Fed are cutting before the Bank of England because UK inflation has been a little bit higher and a bit stickier. Um, so a first half of, of 2024 rate cut might be a little bit early at this juncture, unless we were to get a bigger deterioration than we expect in, in GDP. So we're looking at, at Q3, maybe around the August monetary policy report for the first BOE cut. Uh, and I think because, you know, in our view, we are, we are clearly now in restrictive territory. And even the BOE's most hawkish member, Catherine Mann, who is something of an outlier, I would say, within that nine-member committee, I mean, even she is acknowledging that current settings are restricted. You know, I think we can get a reset at some point relatively quickly, maybe 250 basis point type cuts in the second half of next year, just to reset policy at more, at more neutral levels. So we're looking at um, maybe a four and a quarter percent bank rate by the end of 2024. You know, beyond that, well, we're getting probably beyond the, the forecastable horizon, but, but maybe not much more easing beyond that, but, but maybe rates settling around 4% in, in early 2025. I'll look past the Bank of England, but you know, after that, on the 22nd of November, we will get uh, the autumn statement too. So on the fiscal side, which is the de facto budget for 
uh, for next year. So we're looking for any fireworks there. This is um, probably two big budgets, essentially fiscal events before the next UK general election around this time next year, we expect. Um, the, the borrowing numbers have, I mean, the fiscal position in general is, is quite difficult and it's, it's really a, a very tight uh, fiscal outlook over the medium term. But in the current year, uh, we have five months or so of, of, of monthly public finances data, and we've seen repeated undershoots in borrowing versus the, the official forecast. So there's a little bit of um, a little bit of fiscal leeway for the government in the near term. Uh, I mean, if you extrapolated the numbers we have to date, you could make the case that maybe they have up to 20 billion pounds, a percentage point or so of GDP to play with. Now, the, the signals at the moment are that don't expect any tax cuts in November. You know, the government is still prioritizing uh, getting inflation down, halving inflation by the end of the year. So I think the giveaways in November may be a little bit more limited. We'll get some, but I think the main fiscal fireworks will be saved until the March budget next year, a little bit closer to the election. Presumably part of that package will be some you know, headline grabbing tax rate cuts, a penny off the basic rate, something like that. For November, maybe a little bit of extra public expenditure. Obviously, there are rising defence commitments, um, <clears throat> some education, infrastructure, school rebuilding, healthcare sector is always under pressure during the winter. So November, I think, will be a little bit more about additional public spending, pre-election tax cuts next spring. Uh, I'm going to shift gears and move to Europe to you, uh, Joanne. So we, we've heard a, quite a lot from ECB speakers. Uh, we also got the ECB minutes. Uh, anything from the speakers or the minutes that has changed your view on uh, on the outlook for the ECB? Yes, I think in terms of speakers, I think there's been a bit of a shift, I think, in terms of the hawks. Um, just in terms of them actually realising or saying that they do think inflationary pressures are waning at this point in the cycle. Uh, so I do think this high for long message seems to be coming out for the ECB. Uh, Hawks as well seem to be suggesting that this is the end of the cycle. And I think the ECB similarly paint a very similar picture where, you know, there was, of course, this um, shift in market pricing right before the meeting, moving from kind of no hike to hike, and the ECB obviously uh, actually coming in and hiking. Uh, there was a lot of discussion, I think, around that. And of course, there were some members that did uh, dissent or did actually not want that um, kind of hike to go through. Uh, but I do think the overall message for, for the ECB seems like there was this point between 375 and 4% that they did that they did think would bring inflation back to target. I do think that obviously PEP and MRR were not really mentioned in, in the minutes, um, but obviously I think in terms of PEP, there's been a lot of discussion on what that means. There's a lot of different views around the committee in terms of PEP. I think there's a lot of views on the market as well on whether PEP will be uh, will be um, moved forward or, or the start of PEP production will be moved forward next year. Um, it's kind of our base case that that happens in mid-2024. Um, I do think that the balance sheet unwind question is becoming increasingly important, especially for the Hawks and the committee. And as we get to this normalisation in our policy conditions, I uh, so do think the PEP story will become more relevant over the end uh, of the uh, end of the year. Obviously, with that being said, the global context and the, um, the kind of condition of spreads will, of course, be a key factor in determining that. I think the one interesting thing as well to draw out for the minutes was on wage inflation, where kind of Q1 wage inflation data will be quite important for informing the rate cutting cycle. 
Uh, of course, our expectation for cuts is that they actually come in March 24, which is a bit ahead of uh, market pricing and potentially ahead of when we get this wage inflation data in Europe. But we do think that the growth picture and the growth forecast that the ECB will provide in December and potentially even March will actually show that the growth picture is um, deteriorating or is all the growth estimates will be lower than they actually put forward for uh, the last meeting, given that I think the data was a bit stale. So this kind of reduction in growth whilst inflation is coming down should really, I think, set us up for a March 24, um, 24 cut. But I think, of course, uh, everything is context dependent, especially in this kind of uh, environment where geopolitics is also playing a role in kind of how inflation may play out going forwards. So you mentioned uh, you know, it, it depends on geopolitics too, and similar to the rest of global fixed income, uh, European uh, fixed income rallied as well. Uh, do you have any particular changes in your directional view on the back of that, or do you maintain your current stance? So we we were bearish as of last week, but I do think the interesting point in Europe is that, of course, I think the ECB, unlike the Bank of England and the Fed, have called the end of the cycle, I think, a bit more specifically. Uh, and I think the language there does kind of indicate that the cycle is here. So the front end does remain fairly pinned. But the back end, I think, is super exposed to uh, cross-country correlations, like we said last week. Where I suppose that this time around and this week, it's actually moving in a more bullish direction, given that we've had a pretty strong kind of risk off um, after we've got this this geopolitical news. And I think, of course, what, what you kind of said already, Jan, on the Fed and the Fed kind of dialing back their hawkishness clearly has implications for Europe as well. Uh, so I do think that uh, for now, it does seem quite uh, uh, unlikely that the momentum shifts bearish, uh, at least for now, given that uh, we have this kind of uncertain geopolitical situation and uh, Fed numbers that are suggesting a bit less hawkish of a tone than they were previously. And to wrap up with Italy here, uh, Italian spreads are now under 200 basis points. Uh, and, you know, given what's going on with the economy and our outlook for like general weakness in, uh, across the Euro, do we expect, uh, uh, do we expect to, to see any widening there? Yeah, so I mean, I think BTP spreads got to highs of 207 uh, basis points this week. And Italy has not really been driven by Italian specific factors, I would say, in the last couple of weeks at least. It seems like the high beta to core rates has pushed BTPs above 200. It seems like negative risk sentiment as well has pushed BTPs past 200. So I'm not really that uh, concerned or not that surprised that actually BTPs have come down uh, under 200 basis points this week um, after what we've seen. But to me, I think the general story for Italy over the rest of the year really is the story of a potentially a bit more widening. Our BTP target for the MDL for 10-year uh, BTP bond spreads is 210 basis points. And I think that's really just driven by the story that the ECB will start to consider PEP a bit more or start to talk about it. And PEP, of course, there's been uh, a lot of kind of uh, support for the BTP spread through PEP, which means that any kind of indication that PEP is coming off could spook the markets a little bit. Uh, but I think just to add on this, I mean, I think in terms of PEP, the ECB has obviously come in with some sources articles this week stating that they're like in no rush to really unwind it. I think they're obviously a bit um, cautious given where spreads have got to at the moment. Uh, but I do think where whatever happens with PEP, they will obviously be very mindful of where the spread is and what this, that could do to the, do to the spread. So I do think that 
they could potentially look for a solution where they have a PEP that is only partially um, reinvested so that they kind of have this this tool where they're able to control the spread by uh, sort of partially reinvesting and keeping that kind of flexibility, if you will, going forward. And also they have this TPI instrument as well, which could also be used in case spreads do uh, kind of move too quickly or or too wide. So I would say that what happens on PEP, again, is very conditional on the context and context and I suppose the levels we're seeing then. Uh, if we get a scenario where growth is deteriorating really sharply or um, we have kind of a shift in macroeconomic um, scenarios for next year, it could shift the outlook. But I think from where we're standing now, there could be a way to progress PEP even with, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, keeping the flexibility. All right. Okay. I think this is probably all we have for uh, for this week. And thanks everyone for listening in. Uh, if you like this podcast, please uh, subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or if you want to watch us do this, uh, you know, if you want to see our faces as we record this, it's on YouTube as well. So uh, <laughs> thanks for dialing in, and uh, we'll be back with Imogen next week where she can do these outros much better than I do. So <laughs> better with us. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>